each of the psalms that we've talked about has an easy way of applying uh, it to our lives because it deals with who we are as people. But the psalms are all different types of writing, all different types of literature uh, focused in on different things. Some of them have to do with pain and happiness. Others deal with anxiety and forgiveness and others even hope. But one of the ones that we're going to talk about today is not so much about us, but it's all about God. You see, David is going to uh, proclaim the greatness of his God and the greatness of the God whom we serve. I want you to think about this question for a moment. What do you know about God? What is God like? What do you know about him and what makes him your God? What makes him so great, greater than everything else in this world, that you would put your hope and your prayer and your trust in this God whom you've never seen, you've never physically, if you will, talked to him, and you've never been able to do anything more than see the evidences of his leading in your life? What would give you uh, the desire to follow him and to devote your life and energy to that? I wonder if David was thinking that when he penned the words of Psalm 8. Because he speaks about the greatness of God. In essence, he says there's no one in comparison to who God is. And that begs the question for me today, what makes anything great? What made Michael Jordan the greatest basketball player? What made Abraham Lincoln the greatest president? What makes Bill Gates and Warren Buffett great businessmen? What makes the United States great as a nation? What makes these things great? Well, I think the best way to explain greatness is not so much of what it is as how it compares to other things. With each of those things, there's nothing like each of those things. There's nothing that compares to those things which make them great in and of themselves. So as we look at Psalm 8, we look at that there's nothing that can compare to our God. We come to David where he speaks of this greatness of his God. And he shares some theology. Now some of you may say, Tim, I'm not a big theology fan. That's boring and it's a bit mundane. But I want you to simply think of this. Theology is the study of God. Theos is the Greek word for God. Ology is the study of. When we talk about theology, what we're talking about is studying who God is and what he's all about. Jonathan Edwards shares this when it comes to the issue of theology and the pursuit of God. He says the proper pursuit for every Christian is God himself. Can you say that this morning? That your pursuit is God himself? He goes on and he says the highest science and the loftiest speculation and even the greatest dream that can ever engage the child of God is the name, nature, attribute, and activities of the great God whom we call Father. Is pursuing God your greatest dream this morning? Is pursuing God in in your thinking and in your thoughts on life a part of who you are as a believer? I'll make a statement that I think is incredibly true, and that is your faith in Jesus Christ will only go as far as your knowledge of the Almighty goes. If you know little about God, your faith in Him will go little in its distance. So we look at a man named David. A man who had a desire to have a heart of God. And we know that he knew his God incredibly well. For any of us, if we want to do what's right, if we want to do what is holy, then we must have the goal of knowing who God is. 
Sadly, in our world today, we have a lot of people who love God, and that's good, but they don't know who they serve, whom they worship. And David's going to share with us the person of God, his attributes, his work, and how he moves and acts with creation and us, his people. God desires this. God desires for us to pursue him in this way. When Jesus was talking to the woman at the well in John chapter 4, Jesus articulated this truth. He said, my father looks about, he searches after people, worshipers, who will worship him in spirit and in truth. There's a lot of people who worship in spirit. Their hearts are engaged, but their minds know little about the God whom they serve. And so Psalm 8 needs to be our example. An example that fills the heart, exhilarates the heart, and leading it to magnify the name of Jesus and our God the Father in heaven. But it also knows in its mind whom it's worshiping and why. And so Psalm 8 becomes the reason why we worship. So let's look at this text, Psalm chapter 8. And I'd ask that you would go ahead and stand. I'm going to ask you to help me read this, and I want you to read it with an 11 o'clock in the morning uh, power and with volume. Uh, verse 1, the first part of verse 1, and then verse 9. And if you notice, it says, O oh Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. It doesn't just end with a period, but it ends with what? An exclamation point. And so I want to hear that phrase with an exclamation point, like Village Bible that I know and love can do. And then in verse 9, I want you to do it again, and I'll read the rest for us. So let's go ahead and start this. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. You have set your glory above the heavens. From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have set in place, what is man that you are mindful of him, the son of man that you care for him? You made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. You made him ruler over the works of your hands. You put everything under his feet, all flocks and herds and the beasts of the field, the birds of the air, the fish of the sea and all that swim the paths of the sea. Let's read this together. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. Let's pray. Father God, we come before you, and Lord, we recognize today that a walk with Jesus is all about you. It's not about us, and Lord, so many times our sermons and our songs and our prayer requests revolve around us. Then we come to a passage like Psalm 8. And we recognize it's all about you. Oh, Father, I pray that we would worship as Psalm 8 tells us to. That we would live lives that would magnify and raise up high the name of our God in heaven. Lord, that we would recognize we're small. We're mere particles in the world that you've created. But Lord, not because of what we've done, but because of you, you have sought fit to love us to care for us and to concern yourself with our measly little lives. Oh, Lord, let us see how big you are, how small we are, and then let us see the grace and mercy of a God who visits his people in our times of need. Oh, Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. 
Let your name be magnified this morning. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. You may be seated. As we look at Psalm 8 this morning, David uses this psalm to share four important things that we need to be aware of when it comes to knowing that there is no equal to our God. I can imagine David for a moment uh, maybe watching a flock of of sheep and other animals and and pulls out his harp as he looks at the starry night in Palestine and he begins to just play out of the overflow of his heart, O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. What heart of worship David had for the God who was his creator. And it didn't take him long to be able to pen these words. Words that ring in our heart, true to us today, just as they were when he wrote them. Now notice what he says right away. The first point that I want you to see is that there's no equal to our God because of his superiority. One of the reasons why we believe that there is no equal to God is he's superior to everything else in this world. And we see this in four very unique ways. I want you to write this down. First of all, God is superior because he's a particular God. Notice what David says in verse 1. He says, O Lord, our Lord. David isn't just talking about some celestial being that he doesn't know. He's talking to a particular God. The God he's speaking of is the God that has been revealed to him through the history of his people. The God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The word that is used there for Lord is the word Jehovah, speaking of the self-existent, eternal God. And it was the national name of God for the Jewish people. This was a very particular God. David isn't just pursuing or praising any kind of God, but he's praising the God who he has seen work in his own life and work in the life of his people. One who has taken care of them by bringing miracle upon miracle, by bringing military victory upon military victory. He's the God that has been uh, holy enough to set them apart from issues of sin, to discipline them when they've gone the wrong way. This God whom David is praising is a particular God, not just someone that he doesn't know about. He's superior because he's a personal God. David says, O Lord, our Lord, Oh, what a powerful word that our is there. That pronoun that is able to tell us that we possess something. You see this unfathomable God, this great God, this God over the universe, David says, is my God. He's your God. This is the thing that makes Christianity different than any other religion in the world. In Islam, you don't have a relationship with uh, Allah He's up doing his thing and you're doing your thing and the only thing you need to worry about is not to make him angry. In the religion of Hinduism and Buddhism, you don't have a relationship between the gods of those religions and the people. But in Christianity, we have a relationship. We have a God who loves us, a God who desires relationship with us, a God who is personal. What an amazing God that we serve. He's superior because he's powerful. Notice what he goes on to say. O Lord, our Lord. In the Hebrew, Jehovah, our Adonai is what the Hebrew would say. The word Adonai means sovereign ruler. And what that reminds us of is this God reigns supreme. 
He's in control of all things at all times. The things that we see, the things that we don't see, the things that we, have control, we think we have control over and the things that seem out of control, God is overseeing and ruling all those things. Now, we give lip service to that. We say, well, yeah, I believe God is sovereign. But let me tell you something. The older I get, the more I live by that because I can't open the newspaper. I can't watch the news. I can't see the chaos that's going on in the world and not ask the question, is there a God in heaven? And God uniquely and so clearly has shown me that he's there. And he says, I will work all things out to the conformity of my will. And as chaotic as it looks, God says, Tim, don't worry about it because I'm in control. We need to know that and we need to live with that because if God's not sovereign, we have no hope. If you really think about it, if we're relying on the world to figure things out, we're in trouble. But if you're a child of God, you can put your hope in the God who reigns supreme. The final thing that makes him superior is his high position. Verse 1 says, you have set your glory over the heavens. The simple statement here is the idea that God demonstrates that he is above all. The majestic name of God flows from heaven and it permeates down into the earth. What this means is that God demonstrates his supremacy and his transcendence so that we can know he is God. Listen to the words of Psalm 19.1. The heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day they pour forth speech. Night after night they display wisdom. Do you understand that when you woke up this morning, there was a worship service already taking place? And that when you go to bed tonight, there will be a worship service going on 24 hours a day, seven days a week. The world is singing its heart out, saying, holy and awesome are you, God. How majestic are you in all the earth. Remember, if we don't praise, Jesus said, the rocks will cry out in their worship. And they cry out because they know who is God. And they know that God is the God who has power over life and death. They know as creation, all of creation does, that he is responsible for everything under his domain. He is the final decision maker. He is the holy and righteous judge who will judge the living and the dead on the day that his judgment comes. The rocks know that. The trees know that. The mountains and the plains know that. And the question is, do we as Christians know that God? Do we know we serve the God of all supremacy? Do we know that there is no equal to the God whom we worship and to whom we serve? Second thing David brings up is he says there's no equal to our God because of his shrewdness. His shrewdness. In verse 2 it says... From the lips of children and infants you have ordained praise because of your enemies to silence the foe and the avenger. I think verse 2 talks about the shrewdness of how God operates. He doesn't operate as you think he would, but he does it in a way that's far different. I think Psalm 8-2 is probably pretty similar to what Paul, the Apostle Paul, was thinking in 1 Corinthians 1-27 when Paul says that God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. You see, God is so incredibly infinite 
and so incredibly unfathomable. We can't even put together with all of our smart people in one room. They would never be able to put together words that would describe and would speak to the greatness of God. And yet what does God do? He says, my glory and my majesty can be understood by a little child. That's why we do things like VBS. That's why we do things like children's worship and Sunday school. We don't say you have to be 18 to understand the things of God. Just the other day, we were driving home from uh, a night's activities, and my three-year-old son was looking out the window, and I, I remember it was just a couple weeks ago. I think it was after we had a, it was at a lunar eclipse not too long ago. I think it was the day after that had taken place, and the moon was massive. It was, it was filling the sky. And my little three-year-old Luke said, Dad, look at the moon. Doesn't that show you how big our God is? I said, where did you come up with that? How did you connect that? Out of the, mouth, or out of the lips and mouths of babes, you have ordained praise. My three-year-old had the wherewithal to praise the name of God and his vastness by looking at the moon. Kids can understand. This scripture was used. I want you to turn in your Bibles to Matthew 21 for a moment. Matthew 21. Psalm 8 was used by Jesus on the day of his triumphal entry, the the day of Palm Sunday, in Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. And it's seen in such an incredible contrast as Matthew 21 shows us. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16 say the following. Keep going to the wrong passage here, I apologize. Matthew 21, verses 14 through 16. The blind and the lame came to him at the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priest and the teachers of the law saw the wonderful things that the ch- wonderful things he did, and the children shouting in the temple area, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Do you hear what these children are saying, they asked him? Yes, replied Jesus. Now notice what he says to the Pharisees and chief priests. Have you not read Psalm 8? Is what he asks. From the lips of children and infants, you have ordained praise. Now, I want you to notice something. On that Palm Sunday, when Jesus comes in, it is the children who see what Jesus is doing, and they say, he's the Messiah. He's the one we've been waiting for. And the chief priest and the teachers of the law, with all of their requirements, with all of their head knowledge, they miss it. And they say, why are you letting these kids do it? And Jesus says, because they're speaking the truth. Kids can understand the greatness of God. Now notice what he says back in Psalm 8. He says in Psalm 8 that the reason that he uses babes and infants is for a very particular reason. He says the following. He says that he has done this to silence the foe and the avenger. He speaks of enemies And the way that he's going to deal with his enemies is use something that which is small or inconsequential. It's not very big. And notice what this idea of enemies is. Enemies speaks of human strength. Who's against God? We as human beings. And the enemies of God are arrogant in their own thinking. They oppose God. And you hear it every day at work. When someone hears something about God, they say, how can you be a follower of God? That's a joke. 
I was watching a cable television news program this week, and they likened Christianity and the beliefs of Christianity to mental illness. Anybody who believes in that stuff has lost their mind, this smart intellectual person was saying. And the only thing I could say to the TV was, you're a fool. You're a fool if you think there is no God. And you say, I'm the crazy one. We will see when you bow the knee and your tongue confesses that Jesus is Lord. They scoff at the even thought of worshiping God. And yet what they fail to recognize, with all of their eloquence, with all of their pondering, or, uh, posturing and, and pondering on the thoughts of who God is and the lack thereof of any evidence that he is God, God is saying, I will destroy you through the work of children. Little babes. There's no better picture of this than in the old Sunday school story that we've learned about from 1 Samuel that speaks of David and Goliath. Goliath, the great warrior of the Philistine army, comes against the nation of Israel. Some scholars believe he could have been eight or nine feet tall. and A man, a mega man, if you will. So powerful and so great. A man able to destroy armies. And this man comes before the people of Israel and he looks at the one that is sent, little David, and he says to David, am I a dog that you come with me with sticks? And the Philistine cursed David by his gods. Come here and I'll give your flesh to the birds of the air and the beasts of the field. And I thought about that and I said, you know, what God could have done if he wasn't shrewd in the way he worked is he could have resurrected uh, Samson. Remember Samson? He's a lot like your teaching pastor. A lot of flowing hair, ripped physique. You, you know who I'm talking about. And he could have brought Samson back, one of the big guns. And he could have said, hey, let's get Samson back down there. And Samson, you take care of Goliath. But that's not what God does. God says, instead of an army, get me the littlest guy you can find. David, just a little guy. He's visiting his brothers. Let's bring him into the mix. And Goliath is blown away. Are you kidding me? This is what you bring? Now notice what David says. This same David. He says to the Philistine, you come against me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come against you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. This day the Lord will hand you over to me, and I will strike you down, and I will cut your head. Today I will give you the carcasses of the Philistine army to the birds of the air and the beasts of the earth, and the whole world will know that there is a God in Israel. I wonder... You know, they say David might have been as young as 12 or 13 years of age. Maybe he hadn't gone through puberty yet. Could you hear David saying that in a pre-puberty voice? I'm going to come after you. And I think that would have just added to the whole mystique of it. You big Goliath, I'm going to come after you. You know, you see the VeggieTales thing, the little junior guy comes out, and just with that little cute voice says, I'm going to get you. And God uses that. And what the Philistine army must have done, I wonder, and the text doesn't say, but I wonder after David speaks, if there is just a huge eruption of laughter by the Philistines. Are you kidding me? Oh my goodness, this is insanity. But we'll kill you anyway and we'll call it a day. And we know what happens. That which is weak destroys that which is strong. Over and over again, the scripture speaks to this. Gideon and his victory over an invading army. 
Joshua in the battle of Jericho. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego against the great reign of King Nebuchadnezzar. Bethlehem is the birthplace of Christ. The nation of Israel being God's chosen people through the times of the Old Testament, all of those different occasions when they were small and weak, God made them and used them to be strong. The weak showing the world the greatness of God. There's a second thing that I want you to see in verse 2, and that is babes symbolize human weakness. While the enemies promote the strength of the thought of strength amongst humans, babies are what we see of weakness. They're defenseless. And what David shares in verse 2 is that that which is immaterial, their words, out of the mouth or out of the lips of babes, that which is immaterial, their words that come from immature people out of babes will do mighty things for God. I want you to understand something very important today as believers. God uses the humble to confound the wise. God uses the weak people in this world to show the strong who God is and what he's all about. And so the question I have this morning for you is your job in life to show how strong you are, how great you are, how awesome you are, or is it to say, God, if I can be a babe in your army, then praise be to God because you'll use me more in that way than I could do on my own. You see, a lot of us as Christians like to be known as the important guy, the smart guy, the, the, the guy that has all the right things to say. And God says, I don't need that. God says, I spoke through donkeys. That's all I need. I can speak through you. I don't need you to be all polished and everything. But I can take what you have in the humility of who you are. I can take that and do great things. And sadly, many of us are trying to do the great things on our own. And because we're not living lives of humility, we're not being used by God at all. The book of James says, God opposes the proud, but gives grace to the humble. And some of you are trying in your own strength. You're trying to do things through your own power. And we forget the book of Zechariah, which says, Not by might, nor by power, but by my spirit, says the Lord of hosts. We need to be a people who humble ourselves and say, God, if you can use me in humility, then that's where I want to be. Notice next, there's no equal to our God because of his skill. David then looks to the heavens, and he says, When I consider your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars that you have set in place. I want you to notice something. I didn't share this in the first service, but I think it's important. Notice what he says. When I consider the heavens. Now answer this for me. Are the heavens big or small? Help me out. Big. Would anybody say that the heavens are small? If you are, we need to get you to a doctor, right? It doesn't take us long to look and know that the greatest telescope that we can find still only gets us halfway to the end of our galaxy. It's an amazing thought. But notice what he says. The works of your fingers. Did you know what David is trying to say there? Is that the heavens are so small. He's not working with his hands. He's working with his fingers. The Milky Way. Be careful. You've got to use the small screwdriver for that one. Just 
very carefully. It's like those dumb toys that I get my boys, that dumb screwdrivers, you know, they're so small and you have to work on them like that. That's what God is working with. And David recognizes this. And the first thing that we have to ask the question this morning is, do we stop and take notice to those things? My brother, John Pilkington, is on me all the time that I don't love the stars. My brother loves the stars. He tells me about Cassiopeia, and he tells me about all those other weird names for all those places. And I got to tell you, I struggle with this. What I love is the man-made things. Give me a nice resort by the Marriott Brothers, and I'm a happy man. Give me a nice in-ground pool and some, and some shade and some of those umbrella drinks and just sit back and enjoy a great time. I'm not a big fan of the Grand Canyon and all of that. To my shame. Because in, not in in-ground pools and resorts, but in the trees and the stars and the heavens, we see the handiwork of God. And we need to get some goosebumps about that. And if we don't have eyes to see that, we need to ask God to give us those eyes. I like what Charles Spurgeon says. The quote will be on the screen. The whole creation is full of his glory and radiant with the excellence of his power. His goodness and wisdom are manifested on every hand. Notice what he says. The countless myriads of earthly beings. Let's just stop there. Have you ever been in awe that there ain't anybody that looks like you? If I was God, after the first hundred that I made special, I would have said, let's make them all look like all the guys, Brad Pitts, and all the women like Angelina, and call it a day. I'm kidding, but, okay. Have you noticed that everybody looks different? I think the thing that got me thinking this way was when I look at my three boys, same mom, same dad, and they're completely different. We got pale ones, and then we got the, uh, our, our Middle Eastern one, dark all the time. We got blonde ones, and then we got jet black one. Same mom and dad, and God says, I'm going to mix this up. Then you add their personalities to the mix, and I know God does that because he has a sense of humor. He's like, Tim, you thought you got away with some things, did you? I'll give you three that are very different. Right when you think you know how to parent the first one, then the second one comes, and that book that you bought for the first one is totally non-workable for the second one. There's not a person in this world who looks just like you. There's not a person, you say, well, identical twins. (laughs) They don't even look the same. They don't act the same way. They don't have the same dreams and the same aspirations because God, it says, knit us together in our mother's womb. And so what Spurgeon is saying is, man, you want to just glory in God, just next time you're at the mall, there weren't malls back in his day in London, but just go to the mall and take a look at all the people and just praise God, my goodness. Now, there are some people you might want to praise God for a little more than others. I'm kidding. It's a joke. You should laugh. Ha, ha, ha. Okay, thank you. But notice what he goes on to say. It's not just the people, but from man to creeping worm, all are supported and nurtured by him. Do you know that right now, under our feet, there are worms. There are spiders, ladies. 
There are rodents that are under this building, and they are being nurtured by God himself. Have you ever thought about that? That this world, I know some of you don't want to, but this world is filled with all kinds of creatures, some that we can see, some that we don't want to see, others that we can't see with the human eye, and God is ministering to them and caring for them and taking care of their needs, making sure that the world is the just the right temperature and putting them in the right habitat so that they can live and have their being. And he does that from the worm all the way to the human individual. He goes on and he says, the fabric of the universe leans on his everlasting arms. Have you ever thought about that? That if the world was to just move one foot to one side or the other, it would collapse as we know it. What's keeping this ball in the air? Scriptures tell us, just as we learned as little kids, he's got the whole world in his hand. And so this is what he says. It's on his eternal arm. He's universally present everywhere, his either side, rising like heaven's battlements until you can see but a strip of uh, blue sky. You may be the only traveler who's ever passed through that glen. The birds are frightened and the moss may tremble beneath the first step of a human foot. But notice what he goes on to say. Flip the slide there for me. Yet God is there in a thousand wonders upholding those rocky barriers, filling the flowers with perfume, and refreshing the lonely pines with his breath. Descend to the lowest depths of the ocean where the water sleeps undisturbed and the sand is motionless and broken quiet, and yet God in the glory of the Lord is there as well, revealing its excellence in the silent palace of the sea. Borrow the wings of the morning and fly to the farthest parts of the sea. God is there. Fly to the highest heaven, and God is praised in everlasting song. His brightness shines in the sky. His glory exceeds the glory of the starry heavens and above the regions of the star. He has set his, uh, his everlasting throne. There he dwells in ineffable light. Oh, let us come and adore him. We serve an amazing God, do we not? Two things I want you to know about this God is he's a master designer. He's a master designer. Did you know that David had no advantages of the modern technology that we do? He had very little understanding or evidence of what we have today. Most of the universe was unknown to him. Understand that David did not know that Saturn had rings around it. He didn't even know there was a thing called Saturn. He didn't know there was a thing called Mars. He knew nothing of the Milky Way or the countless galaxies. But when he considered the heavens and he saw their beauty and he saw their complexity, he looked back and he said, my God is great. My God is awesome. And he looks at that vastness and he says, that God is an incredible God and he's a master designer. And then he looks and he says, but what about me? Notice what the next verse says. He says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The second thing you need to understand is that God is a master designer and that we as human beings are pretty small. And if you get that, you're, you're going to be pretty far in your walk with God. Because here's the thing. Even though the world is, or the universe is big, and we're pretty small because we're just an inhabitant in a small little square footage here in Sugar Grove, and we know how big the country is, and we know how big the world is, and all we are is a little ball amongst a whole bunch of other balls known as the solar system, and then you take that, and we're just a little solar system, a part of this vast thing that we call the Milky Way galaxy, which is just a small galaxy amongst many galaxies. God is big, and we are small. 
And yet, what we learn and what David says is that God is more interested in people than he is planets. God is more interested in souls than he is stars. God is more interested in us as a people than he is in the universe. And we need to remember that. And that leads us to a strategy as my final point. What is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. He goes on, he says, you've made him a little lower than the heavenly beings. Speaking of the the angels. Now notice what C.S. Lewis says. He says, when I gazed into the stars, have they not looked down upon me as with pity from their serene spaces, like eyes glistening with heavenly tears over the little lot of man? I don't know what stars think about of us as human beings. We're so small. And yet what God has done is he's created us for a relationship. The Westminster Catechism says this, the chief goal or end of man is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. Did you know that the trees can't do that? Do you know that the chief end of animals is not to do that? But God was pleased to make a people for himself. I want you to notice a couple things about verse 4 that are important. When he says, what is man that you are mindful of him? The word man there in the Hebrew is the word enosh. It means frail man, mortal man, or puny man. Puny man. What are you that God would be mindful of you? The verse teaches us of the inability for us to take care of God's purposes without him. And so we need to understand that. John Stott says this about mankind. Strange that man can reach such heights and depths, majesty and meanness, angel and devil, deity and dust, honored and horrible, foolishness and fellowship. Notice what it says about this man. The son of man that you care for, the King James does a better job of translating this word care. Literally, it means to visit. Even though we are small, in the grand scheme of God's creation, we are just a particle or dust, and yet in John 1, 14, it says the word Jesus Christ became flesh and he made his dwelling among us and we have held and seen his glory, the glory of the one and only. Jesus saw us and he saw us in our need and he came to make us his children. And we need to recognize that and we need to understand that because a lot of you right now are saying there's nothing special about me. You're right. There isn't anything special about you because you're just a particle in the vast universe that God has created. But not because of who you are, but because of who God is. He saw you and what he did was he saw you and he created you for a purpose to have a relationship with him. And we failed in that relationship and fell to sin. And God didn't just leave us there. I want you to think about this as a theological lesson. Think about what the angels must be thinking right now about you. The angels are in the same predicament that you were. Third of the angels fall, just as we did in the garden. And what did God do? God sent them to hell. No questions, no nothing, no opportunity for forgiveness or mercy. You're going to hell. It's over. We fall in the garden. And what does God do? God says, hey, can't leave those poor people down in that situation. I'm going to send my son, Jesus Christ. I'm going to put him on a cross. I'm going to put all of the sin and all of the penalty of death on him. And I'm going to pour out my wrath on him. And I wonder why the Bible says that angels look intently into these things. It must blow their mind. God, why are you doing it for them? They're lower than us. And God says, because I love them. I hope you wrap your thoughts around that this morning. 
how small we are, and yet God has crowned us as the jewel of creation to build a relationship with us, to die for us. And so if you have never come to a knowledge of that in your life, I want you to stop today and say, God, I'm small, you're big, and I need to have a relationship with you. And you bow the knee to Jesus, and you give your life to Jesus so that you can be a part of the divine plan that God has for you. We've gone over time, but let me give you some points to ponder, and then we'll close. What do you do with Psalm 8? Some of you may say, well, Tim, the only application is I'll try to worship more. I'll try to do a little more uh, in my times of singing. I'll close my eyes. I'll raise my arms. I'll sing a little louder. Well, that works, but I'll tell you Psalm 8 has a lot more to apply. Let me give you a couple of them. Write them down. Number one, make it a priority to stand in awe of your creator. If that means you've got to take things off your schedule, if that means you've got to turn off the TV, if that means you just need to get into a quiet place where you can sit back and look at what God has done, do it. Make a commitment to enjoy what God has created. Number two, if you want to live out Psalm 8, it means to treat all people. Let me say that again. It is to treat all people. Say that with me. It is to treat all people with honor and respect. There is no spot in the Christian life for racism. There is no spot in the Christian world for elitism. There is no spot in the Christian life for I'm better than you. As a little kid, we learned red and yellow, black and white... They are precious in his sight. Jesus loves the little children of the world, and he loves them when they grow up as well. Number three, you want to live out Psalm 8? You stand against the horrors of abortion and other meaningless death. It breaks my heart when I hear Christians get excited about people dying. Well, you say it's war, Tim, and God okays war. Yes, God okays war, and I'm not by no means a pacifist. But we need to be careful that we never delight in the death of the wicked. And I was struggling, and I never said it, but I was struggling when bin Laden died because there were some of you who sat there and said, yeah, right on, die, dummy, die. Or even worse things than that. And God doesn't say that. The Bible says God does not delight in the death of the wicked. Why should we? The death of anybody is the snuffing out of a life. Well, you say, Tim, did he deserve it? We all deserve it, don't we? The wage of sin is death. And I recognize the right that we have to govern ourselves and to make those decisions, but be careful. Was an evil taken out of the world? Yes. But did it have to be killed? God says, I don't like that. So don't take that and make it more political than it needs to be, but always ask the question, should I delight in something that God doesn't? Number three, standing resolute against the teaching that takes God from his role as creator. I went to public schools all my life. One of the funnest days that I had was my junior year in biology class when the teacher said that we all came from apes and chimpanzees. At the end of that class, I was sent to detention because of these words. From the looks of things, yes, you may have come from a chimpanzee. But God created me. 
Yeah, I tell you something, I didn't get in a lot of trouble from my house that day. And I'm not sure you want to affirm all of my ways. But let me tell you something. There's a lot of movement right now. In fact, I read an article that even within the Caneland school system, that there's a push for intelligent design to be um, talked about in the curriculum. And I'll tell you, while it doesn't say who is God, I love intelligent design because it gets it into the school system and it says, hey, dummies, look out the world. We didn't just fall into this mess. This didn't just happen. And the great thing about intelligent design is that it gives the opportunity for the Christian to say, I know who the designer's name is. His name is God. And you can have a relationship with him. Don't take away the role of God as our creator. Next one. Teach and show your children that the greatest pursuit in life is God. Some of you right now are raising kids just as I am. And I know your dream is very similar to mine, and I'm going to rebuke that dream for a moment in my own mind as much as I'm rebuking you. Don't raise your kids teaching them that education is the most important thing. Don't raise your kids thinking that athletics and sports are the most important thing. Don't tell them that finding a good job or marrying the right person is the goal in life. I will tell you something, that if they pursue all of that without God, they will be miserable. You teach your children one thing. God is the greatest pursuit that any young kid can have because it's the greatest pursuit that mom and dad have. And you teach your children that, whether they are smart or whether they're dumb, whether they go to school or not, whether they have a job or don't have a job, if they find their greatest pursuit in God, they will be the greatest individual who's ever lived. A couple weeks ago, we were at a parade. And Noah was laughing because there was someone who was following the lives or the uh, horses down the parade route. And the dung was taking place. I don't need to go any farther than that. And they got people back there shoveling. And Noah says, man, I feel sorry for that guy having to do that. Let me tell you something. If my sons have that as their job and glorify God by shoveling up the streets after livestock and horses, then they are blessed. They're blessed. Martin Luther said, if I could be a privy pot, a bedpan for God, I'm greater than a king. Make God your greatest pursuit. Be good stewards of God's creation. I know that's political, and I know we could get into a whole thing. What it is, as Christians, we don't need to destroy the creation God has given us. So within your abilities, do all that you can to make creation be as beautiful as it can. I don't need to go any farther than that. And finally... Always be thankful to God for loving us and giving us a life and purpose in Christ Jesus. This is what Psalm 8 is all about. Let me read a passage of Scripture. We're going to close with a song. This is what 1 Chronicles 29, 11 says. Yours, O Lord, is the greatness and the power and the glory and the majesty and the splendor. For everything in heaven and earth is yours. Yours, O Lord, is the kingdom. You are exalted as head over all. Wealth and honor come from you. You are the ruler of all things. In your hands are strength and power to exalt and give strength to all. Now God, our God, we give you thanks and praise your glorious name.